The, but the big uh, mistake they made was to say, you know, you want your new thinking and not things that are done and dusted. And when I hear, you know, any new thoughts I have, any new ideas I have, are always like utterly inchoate and incoherent for a very, very long time. So, so to just give you fair warning, my talk basically is like what Celia said with incoherent thoughts scattered around it. Okay, so yeah, that's, that's what you're getting, so as long as you know. Now, the other thing is um, things that Russell said and things that Rob said are also resonate throughout this talk and the the thing that i'm also going to be talking about is our issues related to embodiment this idea of embodied cognition which I, i'm starting to think is a, is a misnomer because there's no such thing as disembodied cognition really if you're talking about you know living creatures all our cognition has to be embodied because of what exactly the point rob made that brains evolved in the service of action they evolved to control adaptive behavior in the world and interesting, I, this someone, um, one of my students gave me this. I went, oh look, you know, Alan Turing, he he was like an in, into embodied cognition. And as you read that, it should be apparent that that although he, it seems as though he is, he's actually got it, you know, completely arse about face there. In two, one, it's very dualist in a very clear substance dualist way, but it's also exactly the opposite of what Rob was saying. That what you've got there is, is this idea that you know really you just have to have a body. I mean, um, Ken Robinson says this. You know, your body's just there to take your brain to meetings. And that's not, that's not true at all, you know? And this is, what, this is Rodney Brooks's point, that, that in the four billion years of, of um, the evolution of life on Earth, most of it was spent refining the sensory and motor actions that enable action in a dynamic and fast-changing world. Things like language and logical syllogisms and mathematics and playing chess evolved in the blink of evolution's eye. And therefore, they must be quite simple to implement. The difficult thing are these sensory motor processes that coordinate action in the world. So, the kind of thing that Alan Turing is talking about here, um, when, I want to, when I want to introduce these things to, to my students in Canada, I, I say, you know, what he's talking about here is the kind of Leonard Cohen model, because right? he's worshipped as a god in Canada, Leonard Cohen. And uh, so it's the Leonard Cohen model of, of this, you know, oh, I'm so lonely, I love this enigmatic woman, I love her, but I don't understand her. And that's, and, then, and if you're, you know, if you've got any philosophical... Uh, now, so although that's essentially a Cartesian view, that we are subjects directed to a world of objects, the problem of knowledge is how, you know, how does an isolate, how does, this, how does an individual subject gain, gain knowledge of things in the world, including other minds in the world? <clears throat> and what I want to do is, is say, you know, that if we're going to take sociality seriously, we really have to take it very seriously um, if we want to understand the evolution of, of, of human cognition, because we are essentially and fundamentally social animals, and our cognition is constitutively social. We are fundamentally social. The only reason we can be the kinds of individuals we are is because we grow up in a, in a social world. So um, <clears throat> that's the kind of the, the larger point. So it doesn't do to, to think to start from that position. It's not that we're not these kinds of Cartesian subjects. We obviously are. But it's not the right starting point to understand these things. And the, the kind of position that we want to take is something so associated more with the, the people like the American pragmatists, that we're really talking about how, not how do individual isolated um, subjects come to understand the world, but how does an individual emerge from this, this kind of social public mass? That's the, that's the way to look at it. And people like, so we've got here on the end there, that's John, uh, George Herbert Mead, you've got John Dewey, both of whom, um, and John Dewey is a big one for this, the idea of sensory motor coordination, rejecting the idea that you have a, an arc, a reflex arc, that we're talking about loops of sensory motor coordination. Um, George Herbert Mead was, was a, well, he called himself a, a social behaviorist, and he was very concerned with 
They're trying to understand how, how selves came about. How does, how does a self come about? And a self is, in his words, was a fundamentally social product. And I've even, I've even put um, B.F. Skinner there because he, he was also a, a pragmatist. What he denied was the separation of mind from behaviour. And he's, if, you, if you read he, you know, his own writings, he really does emphasise that mind and behaviour are folded into each other, that, that the behaviour is constitutive of mind, that we can see if whatever you want to think, if you want to call it mental activity, we can see it rolling out before us in the things that, the actions that people take. And those acts include things like speech. And so you can study private experiences if you can talk about them, because those are then available to study. And here on the, uh, uh, your far yeah, the right or left, depending on what you're looking at it, is uh, Lev Vygotsky, the Russian developmental psychologist. So what I want to, to do is say that we need to take this, this kind of view and start with the social and take it seriously. And one of the reasons why <clears throat> I've, I've come to realise and think about that a lot is when I went to, to Lethbridge, they gave me, they said, here you go, you can teach this, social psychology, here are the textbooks you can pick from. And I wanted to stab myself in the head with a fork looking at them because none of them have told you anything about sociality or psychology. And it, it kind of speaks to things that, that, in a way, Russell was saying in, some, in his talk, that people, that, that these textbooks are all about how do, how do individuals resist social processes? Peer pressure, you know, bystander effects. How do we do all these things? And they don't really deal with what it means to have a social psychology. The whole section, you know, sections on, on the self, which is a, you know, incredibly interesting topic in psychology, the topic, perhaps, is reduced to a section on self-esteem, that makes you know, Oprah Winfrey look like, I don't know, Wittgenstein. Um, <coughs> so so, I, so I, that's why I had to move away from looking at these contemporary things and look to old books for some new ideas. And so what I want to do quickly is just go through a little bit of um, the work of Mead and Vygotsky and, and just give you, like, just to, to gloss over a lot of it, but just to point, pull out the things that I think are, are important and that help make the points that I want to make. Um, and, and essentially, both uh, Mead and Vygotsky were concerned with this question. How do we make humans? How do we construct the, the kinds of people we spend our days with? And that, that was their question. And, and this quote from Mead captures it perfectly, because his point is that, you know, here, um, <clears throat> it's absurd to look at the mind simply from the standpoint of the individual human organism. For although it has its focus there, it is essentially a social phenomenon, and even its biological functions are primarily social. So that again, it helps me, you know, it's again Rob's point, that even these things, these social things we do are fundamentally, you know, even the, you know, <clears throat> even the acts we, all the acts we engage in are fundamentally social at all times. Even when you stand in the bathroom on your own brushing your teeth, that's a social act. Someone made that toothbrush for you. Someone taught you how to brush your teeth. You chose between a range of toothpastes. You chose Colgate, not McLean's. Everyone buys Colgate, all the people who work for McLean's go get the sack and you're, you know, you're responsible for that action. All this, everything we do as a, as a human is a cultural act, even these individual things. Um, <clears throat> so to, to, to just give you an overview of the things I think are important, and this will show you where the things that Celia was talking about are fundamentally crucial to understanding the human cognition and its evolution, as I would suggest. So um, Lev Vygotsky was a developmental psychologist who died very young. He had very interesting ideas. And one of his um, most crucial points is that the development of individuals and their mental functioning is, is not just a maturational process or a developmental process, it's a cultural and historical process. 
And that kind of, and the point he was making was exactly the one that, that Celia was making this morning, that Russell's made a bit this afternoon, <clears throat> that, we, that some of the things we learn and how we learn, we learn culturally, and that there need not be these deep genetic roots to them. Um, and so the point that gets made here is that he, so what happens initially as you grow up and then, you know, your experience of your culture is to participate in it. You don't understand it. You're not, you're actually not necessarily voluntarily participating in it, but you are participating in it. And you don't necessarily know that you're, you're doing that. You just do it. And over time, you gradually become to internalize, or you can, you can use the word internalize and adopt those things and understand them from an individual perspective. That that's how, so it's not that, our behavior, you know, that what's in our head is the source and cause of our behavior, but that um, the, the, what we think comes from what we do. That behavior is the source and cause of what ends up in our heads, if you want to put it like that in a very dubious way. So, so Vygotsky's had this, like, this general, general, law, general genetic law, meaning developmental, law of cultural development. So you dress your baby as a biker or princess Leia. They have no idea why you're doing that. But they go with it because, you know, they have little choice in these matters. And over time, by participating in that way, um, in this public, shared, social, intermental way, you come to understand and construct your knowledge in a private and uh, subjective and, um, you know, independent way that you can then think about the world. And, and so everything happens on two planes. First, it happens socially, and then it happens individually, but the social is crucial. And Vygotsky's other big point was that language was crucial to this process, um, that it was crucial to what he called the development of higher mental functions, which is, a, as, as Rob said, it's kind of a slippery term. But his point was that, that what happens over the course of, of social development is that we um, are spoken to by others, we converse with others, and what we're doing over that course of that is we're in, we end up internalizing a social world a social other because we all talk to ourselves i'm right right it's not just me we all talk to ourselves but who is this i that we talk to who is that who is that other person in there there's just one of us in there isn't there um you know under ordinary circumstances and Vygotsky's point is that the, uh, the other person you're talking to really is another person you're not thinking you're not thinking to yourself you're talking to the generalized social other that has come about through this process of development. So um, he makes this analogy with between tools, technical tools, you know, hammers and drills and things, and science. And his, his point is that in just the way that technical tools increase our human functionality, so psychological tools um, increase our cognitive capacities in that way. That this is the crucial factor, that, that signs act as psychological tools that increase human uh, thinking capacity. And so they have the effect of moving from, say, from looms to, um, you know, industrial, or hand looms to industrial looms. And the inclusion of psychological tools or signs into human functioning fundamentally transforms it. So language transforms thought. And that the most general activity of man that differentiates him from animals is signification, and that is the creation and use of signs. And um, George Herbert Mead similarly makes these kinds of arguments. He doesn't make them so much developmentally, but his argument is, is, is similar in that how do we become the, self, the kinds of selves that we are? And he con similarly conceives of a two-stage process. And his one is, he, he looks at what he calls, he describes what he calls the conversation of gestures. And he fa famously uses the example of a dogfight. 
um, <clears throat> to, to make this argument, that one dog will produce a particular action or gesture that will lead to a response in the other dog, that that response will then lead to another response in this dog, and so on and so forth. And, and the only thing that produces that, that response in, in one dog is the action of the other. So it is a conversation. That, those con that conversation is unconscious or non-conscious. The, the other animal isn't aware of the effect that it's actually producing in the other. It doesn't see its own actions from the point of view of the other animal. So that, as he says, we don't assume that the dog says to himself, you know, if the animal comes from this direction, he's going to spring at my throat and I will turn in such a way. What does take place is an actual change in his own position due to the direction of approach of the other dog. And, and just as an aside, I would say that part of the problems I see with a lot of comparative cognition, some of the things that, that Russell's talking about, these comparisons between humans and other animals in this very dichotomous way, is often we do assume exactly that when we're looking at other animals. We are assuming that they're doing the same, that kind of inference that we would do. And I don't think they, they are necessarily, and, and we're almost certainly not. Because what happens with, in humans is we get this um, with the, and, and again, language is key, what Hamid calls the conversation of significant gestures. And what he means by that is that once you have language and you talk to others, you can't but help hear yourself talking at the same time. Your language has, the words you use have the same effect on you that they have on others, um, because, because you hear yourself speak. And so you ask your, you know, you say you ask someone to bring you a chair. You arouse the tendency to get the chair in the other, but he is slow to act, so you get it yourself. And his point is that you can respond to your own gestures as though you were another person. And you can see how your own gestures will affect other people. You have gained an element of reflexivity. And it's that reflexivity that makes um, the kinds of things that humans do engage with significant gestures and not just gestures. So he, he um, considers that, that the ability to see ourselves as others see us and vice versa. Um, is what allows us to communicate intentionally and not just unconsciously, as other animals do. So his view is that mind is an emergent um, property, is the interaction of organic individuals in a social matrix, and that it's dependent on language. Um, and the, the point to make there is it's not to deny the, the character of the brain or anything like that. The peculiar character of the central nervous system is what allows that to happen. But without the social processes of conversational behavior, and by that he means generally, not just literal conversation, any kind of social interaction, there wouldn't be any of these significant symbols for individuals to internalize. So that's the kind of reason why you have to take that we're coming from the social first, and from that, the kinds of um, subjective individuals that we think of ourselves emerges. So for Vygotsky, thought and language um, just to, to highlight the difference between them, thought and language had completely different roots. He used, he used Curler's work on chimpanzees to say, yes, non-human animals have thought, but they don't have language, and so they can't control their actions in the way that we can. We don't, they don't have this extra psychological loop of control that allows us to do what we do. Whereas um, Mead suggested that, you know, completely, that without, without language you had no thought. There is no mind or thought without language at all. You can take that in a strong sense, that, that's, you know, the, that only humans have this thing, or you can take it in a weak sense, in that without language you don't have human-like thought, and other animals may have their own animal-like thoughts. But, um, so the reason why I find, I, I, I find this interesting, and how it links to what I do, because I study non-human primates mostly, 
is it makes looking at other animals interesting because, because then it becomes a question of, well, how do they manage their sociality in the absence of the kinds of things that we find so crucial to ours? What are the constraints on what is possible when you don't have language and these kinds of things that, that Mead and Vygotsky place such emphasis on? How do they do it? And, and what um, we've been looking at is this idea of to do with signals and displays as kind of emergent uh, in the embodied responses that animals produce to each other's gestures. It's to take this idea of gestures and look at it more, more closely. And to just sort of illustrate what I mean here, this is, if you take uh, Esther Thielen and Linda Smith's work on Piaget's A not B task, they show something very interesting. So the A not B task is very simple. You show a baby a toy, you put it in a hiding box in position A, there's a certain delay, then you give the baby access to the box and allow it to reach. And um, it will reach for box A where the toy was hidden. You do that for several trials and then you switch and put the toy in box B. And then you allow the baby to reach and see which one it goes for. Babies eight to 10 months old will perseverate. They'll reach for A even though it's in B. But babies over the age of 12 months generally will, will reach for B. Okay, so you get this, this difference between older and younger babies. And Piaget said this is because the younger babies don't, have yet, a, don't yet have a stable object concept. They haven't worked, you know, they don't have object permanence in that, in that way, so they fail the test. Um, but what Smith and Tienan did was, was produce some manipulations, introduce some manipulations, and babies of, of eight to 10 months could then pass this very same test. If you remove the delay, they pass. If you, whoops, change their posture between hiding the toy and allowing to reach for it, they pass. And if you add weights to the baby's arms or legs, they, I couldn't find a baby pushing weights. Um, yeah, if you add weights to their arms or legs, they pass. Now, if it's to do with having this cognitive, you know, stable concept of an object in their heads, you know, separate from their motor actions, why should any of these things matter? They shouldn't. Why should merely standing a baby up increase its capacity to pass? And Smith and Tina's uh, answer was that the, the belief or the object concept, or whatever you want to call it, doesn't just sit isolated in the baby's head or separate from its sensory motor processes. That belief, or whatever you want to call it, or the object concept, is found in the, the, the reaching patterns that the baby produces. It is, it is an embodied response. The, the, the system as a whole has the belief, not just the baby's brain. And so if you do things to change the dynamics of that entire system, you can, you, ch you know, the memories for, the, for where the object lies are, whoops, are in, the, are in the actions that it takes. And so standing the baby up changes the dynamics of the system and allows those, that memory to be disrupted and new, and new memories to form. So the, the point here is whatever the baby has, it's not the stable fixed concept that we associate with kind of linguistic concepts. It changes with context. A delay or a change in posture or adding weights changes in context, changes what the baby believes in that way. So that's a, that's a very different way of looking at these things and it seems to resonate more with what, with what animals do. So this is um, a video that I took on Monday so these are the two, two male vervet monkeys, and this is what I mean by the, 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 the medium is by the conversation of gestures. So this male comes over to this male, and they're, they're actively not looking at each other at this moment. So he comes and sits here. And I was going to slow it down, but we 
don't even need to, but you can see how they're, there's this kind of antiphonal sent movement between them, that as one makes one kind of response, the other one makes another. So they go on like this, and, and, and a, lot of the, a lot of what the... Yeah. So the first, the first man, when he first came along, made one of those movements, and the, and the other animal wasn't looking. So it didn't have any meaning. And this is other me's other point. The meaning of a gesture is in its response. So it's once you get this kind of, these kinds of patterns of engagement that you can start looking at what do these, not just what the function they serve, but how do they come about proximately? Because all signals in digital displays tend to be looked at functionally rather than from a proximate perspective. Um, so what that means is that you're, you're, you can very easily slip from saying, yes, it's the, the function of this behaviour is to intimidate the other male to saying the, ma the, the monkey itself knows that that's what it's doing. And maybe it does and maybe it doesn't. But you can't just assume it. It's a hypothesis to be tested. And if you understand a bit more about the proximate mechanisms by which these things are produced, you might then get a better understanding of what it is that animals do and don't understand, rather than simply thinking or assuming that they understand it exactly as we do. So one case in point is this, this display, which is called a red, white, and blue display. Because vervet monkeys have these big blue testicles and a red penis and a little white under their tail. And a dominant male will approach a subordinate male and circle around him in this way, flashing, flashing his nuts at him, basically. And that obviously is massively intimidating, um, according to you know, standard theory. It's a display of intimidation. Now, that, is, that may well be true, but there's, a, there's an alternative way you can look at it. And if you use something called Eshkol-Wattman notation, movement notation, you can get at these things much more um, objectively without having to assume a function. Because you're, you're kind of going backwards then. You've assumed the function and, and then um, you know, you've named something, but you haven't really explained it, is the point I'm trying to make. And what you do with this, it assumes that the, the body is a sphere. And so every part of your body, whether it's a joint, you can imagine a sphere around it. And you can score behavior, you can score movements according to the position they occupy. So, you know, if your arm is out like this, um, you are at position two in, a, in the circle when you go around like this, and you're at position naught when you go like this. So you can score any kind of movement, you can do it relative to um, other animals. And, and why I want to, why, what the point I'm trying to make, I need a volunteer, will you be, would you be a volunteer here, Sia? Can I ask you to stand up? Okay. So, there's a two, if you can come here. Nothing up my sleeve. Um, so there's two species of bird where, where you can, it doesn't matter what they are, but they do this circling mating display. And in one instance, the male will circle the female, and if the female moves away, nothing, he just, he just stops and doesn't do anything. If in the other species, if the female moves away from the male, he follows her. And with eshkol Watman notation, you can work out what's happening. So this is like, so in the circling thing, this is what happens. The male circles around the female, giving her the glad eye, um, and, and then, you know, either they get it on or they don't. Now, could you just turn around on your own axis? Okay, so now I'm also circling. Right? I'm also circling something. I walk over there. But now I'm following him. Why am I following him? Because I wasn't circling him, I was following his bum. And that's what the Eshko Watman thing can go sit down. <laughs> and that's why I had to leave the UK. <laughs> So the point was, they're both circling behaviours, but one isn't really a circling behaviour because it's, it, the, the, the contingency between the, the, the two is the male following the, the female's rear end. He's not circling her, he's following a part of her. There's a relational thing going on. And if you look at the red, white and blue displays of, 
of, um, this is probably very meaningless to you, except that one's much bigger than all the others. And what this shows is if you, if you score those things partner-wise, what that is is that it's showing you that the, the male monkeys are, con are keeping themselves in a parallel position with their, with, so that they can always keep the other one's head in view. So when you get this circling, it's exactly like me following Samir's bum. The, the males are trying to keep their heads in, they're trying to keep their testicles out of the other male's sort of biting apparatus. And so it looks like this, this circling display, but it comes about in a completely different way to, to how you imagine. If we just look at what animals do, and we are coloured by our own views of the world in that way, you can easily end up making mistakes. So, so that's one thing, that looking at these things from this kind of perspective is perhaps more enlightening. And these things may well go for a lot of what we do in our own aspects of personal perception as well. The way we respond to other people need not be a massive process of inference all the time. Maybe they are some of these more embodied processes that, that don't require these kinds of things. And we need to look at the approximate mechanisms in a bit more detail. So <clears throat> the other thing that, that comes from that, because basically what you're talking about there really in a lot of ways is just that, that animals are never separate from their environments. There's a mutuality between organism and environment. And that's another thing that people like Mead and Dewey emphasise, that this mutuality. And Darwin himself, and that's why they were very influenced by Darwin's thought, that he emphasised this, this fit between organism and environment. And this situatedness of cognition is also very important. And, and this is often comes under the, the um, you know, name of what can be called the enacted mind, that we create... Um, in some senses, we create our own worlds for ourselves. And the idea here is that the agents of various kinds will vary in what they seek, depending on their particular circumstances. And those particular circumstances include the kind of body that you have. And so understanding comparatively um, how animals might go, go around doing the things they do depends crucially on the form of embodiment. How they might ground concepts, if they have concepts, will depend crucially on whether they have flippers or they can use their feet as well as their hands, because that's how we are grounding our concepts, based on the kinds of, of bodies that we have. And there will also be sort of disparate and individualised representations of the world, because individuals vary in things like body size and circumstances and all these kinds of things. So you would expect to see variability. The variability you see across individuals is not measurement error under this view. It's information. It's not noise. It, it's data. And so, again, it's this idea that, you know, Brian Colbin and Wishart, who are in the neuroscience department of Lethbridge, are very fond of this phrase, um, you are your brain. Um, you know, and, that, and their basic point is, that, so, so students, don't drink yourselves to oblivion every night. Look after it, because, you know, it's the only one you've got. Not utterly ineffective when they say that, can't they? Um, <clears throat> but really the, the idea, and this is what they really mean in a sense, your brain actually becomes who you are. You know, this behaviour that shapes your brain. And the, so the kinds of behaviour you engage in are going to be crucially important in that. And this is um, a, a shot from a study by Army Clin at, at Yale. And they used eye-tracking technology to look at um, what kinds of things get fixated on by, they looked at normal functioning individuals and, and um, adults and children with autism. And this is just the, one of the things from they show, where they showed the kids with autism. So what they did was show them a film clip and there's Barney the dinosaur and two kids and they just asked the children to watch, watch the, the screener and track their eye movements. Now what this circle here with the cross in it, that's 
the fixation point of this particular subject. It's a small um, object on the bookshelf at the back of the room. And that's what got fixated on for the, for the clip, the entire duration. There's a giant purple dinosaur, but it doesn't feature in this individual's world. And so the point there is that you bring forth a particular kind of world. Um, and so we, um, uh, Peter Hensley and I, in collaboration with a, a colleague of ours um, at, at the University of Central Lancashire, Pamela Qualter, who works on, she works on lonely children. And she is, she's, she's shown that they are um, sensitive, hypersensitive to rejection if you, by using kind of standardized scales that measure sensitivity to rejection. Um, and, and so we said, well, why don't we do something to try and look at that in a bit, you know, from this point of view, well, are they really sensitive to rejection where it matters in a kind of social um, situation? Does that, how does, does that manifest? Can we use this same eye tracking um, thing to look at that? So what we did was construct scenes, naturalistic scenes of children in various of groups of various sizes in which there were positive and negative interactions. There were included individuals and excluded individuals. And we just asked kids to watch these clips and, and track their eye movements as they did so. And what we found was that, for example, so these are children who score low on loneliness and sensitivity rejection and score, and score high. And this is the first fixation duration of looking at um, particular social scenes. And so what you see here is that the low, um, this is how long they looked at the reject, the first fixation duration on the rejecting group, the group that was rejecting an individual. So the high um, lone scoring, lonely children, um, they look very quickly and then they look away. So they see it and then they look, they look away from it. But when you look at the um, total number of fixations, they, they spend as long looking at it as the um, low, low lonely children, low score, low score in lonely children. So they are sensitive to this thing, and then they are drawn back to the rejecting group just as often. But what also happens to the high lonely children, highly lonely children, is that they look for much longer once they've started looking at it. So they, they kind of flinch away from it and then look back, and look back as often, and look back for longer. And they spend most of their time then fixating on the, re on the rejecting group. They also, sp oh dear me. they also spend much more time um, looking at lone people, that either individuals who have been rejected from a group or individuals who have not yet been or, or are never invited into the group, they spend much longer, significantly longer, looking at, at them. And they also um, uh, they fix, they have a to higher total number of fixations, and each fixation lasts longer. So when they watch one of these scenes, they're basically seeing the, the, all the negative aspects of it and very rarely register or attend to the positive aspects of it. So the world they're bringing forward is, is a rejecting world. And maybe that has something to do with why they, there is this, this um, problem they have joining groups or approaching groups, because what they are expecting is rejection, because rejection is what they bring forth in their kind of socio-perceptual world, if you want to call it that. So this idea of bringing forth the world, I think, is. It, it does bring in what, what Celia was talking about today, because it, it explains how you cannot just get just cultural variation in what you learn and, what's, and, and how you learn it socially, but also um, within culture variation, you know, individual variation within particular populations and groups, depending on individual circumstances and what it is that you attend to and, and look at. And that's the kind of thing you could talk about as, as social niche construction, that we construct these, our own social niches 
that then helps scaffold and structure what it is that we pick up and learn about the world. And, and that is done both in, in, and that can be is obviously a very cultural thing. That these things are much, much more are obviously emerging developmentally and are very strong, have a very, very strong cultural signature to them. Um, so the final thing I just wanted to say really, or just to talk about, was, was this idea of, of social niche construction and, and just to mention a technique that might help us look at sociality seriously without kind of reducing it down to something that, that doesn't really get at what we want to look at. And so I'm just going to talk to you a bit about this kind of um, social network uh, work that we do with David Lusseau, who's at the University of Aberdeen. Um, and, and this, what this shows you, first of all, is these are social networks from five groups of vervet monkeys, three from Ambazeli in Kenya, data collected by Robert Safarth in the 70s and 80s, and two of our groups from um, Samara, where we work in South Africa. And, what you, and, and all you really need to pick up here is that these networks are, are, are ordered from the top to the bottom in order of dominance hierarchy. So the top females at the top and the bottom females at the bottom. And if you look across the three Ambazeli groups, what you can see is that female number one mostly grooms female number two, who grooms her, and female number three grooms her. So you get this nice zigzagging pattern that, that moves down the hierarchy quite clearly. But when you look at the Samara vervets, one, you can see the groups are much, much bigger. There's 15 females here and 23 females there, which is bigger than the size of most vervet groups, not just the number of females in them. So you've got these big groups, and that pattern goes completely. So the big groups are not kind of clustered, you know, it's not like you cluster a lot of small groups together and you get the same thing. There are these kind of scalar dynamics going on here, where once you get over a certain number of females, it's size, uh, once you get over a certain number of females in the group, that the dynamics and structure of that group change. And what's interesting about that is work by, some, um, I can't remember his first name now, a chap called Johnson, who wrote a very interesting paper about hunter-gatherers. Uh, he showed that in, once you get over a group of about six, in, in hunter-gatherer groups, where you use the data from, but also in any kind of psychology experimental group situation. Once you get over about six, people can't function um, as a group without introducing some kind of hierarchical um, structure to it, getting a leader and, and organising themselves that way. But there is this shift. And it seems to me that there, there, were, there could well be similar shifts in non-linguistic uh, non animals as well, but they obviously can't do the institutional things that we do, so what do they do instead? And again, it's a way of introducing nice, interesting contrast between us and other species by looking at how the lack of the kinds of cultural and linguistic structures we have constrain and limit what they are able to do and how they're able to do it. Um, the other thing we've been doing is uh, looking at how you can take a social network and incorporate all the behavioural dimensions that animals engage in. So mostly you can construct, uh, for example, say the top one is a grooming network and the middle one is a uh, proximity network and the next one is an aggression network. You can construct these individual networks and they will um, tell you something but you haven't got any way of, of showing how they might fit together because none of those are independent of each other. And you can see here this diagram on the, on the right here, it shows you that you can have um, completely different patterns across those different interaction networks. But if you collapsed all those down, you'd end up with the same triangular pattern. So you can't just add these things together in a simple way because you, you can end up thinking you've got the same pattern that's produced, but it's produced in very different ways. And what David has done is, is use um, what he, uh, you can um, construct a three-dimensional mathematical object, a tensor. 
that incorporates all these interaction networks, all these behavioral dimensions into one big tensor that incorporates the, the non-independence of those interaction networks. So you can look at what happens to the system as a whole when you perturb it without breaking it down into, in an overly reductionist way. And, and so what he's done uh, with us with our, using our data is this is kind of what you could call a knockout experiment. These are two, fem two female baboons who died and what impact did it have on the social network structure of the group? Um, and so what you've got here are the, the, you can use what's called Shannon entropy to measure this. So if this ranges from naught where interactions are highly constrained and very conservative to one where they're very homogenous and very spread out and, and everyone, everyone is very happy to move wherever. Um, so what you've got here is what happened before the females died, um, a simulated removal where a random individual was removed from the network, and what happened after that female um, died in reality. And what you can see is that, and these are controls taken from periods where no individual died, just looked at the, the data in the same way. Um, so I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm just glossing over this, I'm happy to explain it in more detail. But really the only point here is that what you can see is that when these females are removed from the hierarchy, you get this shift in the, in the, in the standardized joint entropy of the tensor as a whole, and, and interactions become more conservative and more constrained. So, so this disruption to the dominance hierarchy changes the nature of female engagement. And you, can, and you can look at how it does it across all the behavioral dimensions at once by measuring this, this entropy, using this entropy measure. And you can then also break it down and, and look at which interaction network is having the most effect on that tensor. And what this shows you is just that you've got the black is grooming, the, the dark grey is aggression. Oh, sorry, sorry, the black is proximity, the dark grey is aggression, and the white is grooming. And what this shows after, after the females died is it's the aggression um, uh, network that becomes more highly constrained. So the, the dominance hierarchy, the agonistic interactions, have this great, are having this greatest effect. And another um, interaction network for shifting as a consequence. So you can see that the proximity um, network becomes more homogenous. The entropy of the, of the interaction network of proximity of just who you sit next to becomes more homogenous. So there's a shift in the proximity network that, that is somehow compensating for the aggression network. And now you know that, you can go and interrogate the data further to look at exactly how that process is happening. But you've done it by using this, this technique that doesn't break things down in, in, a, in a reductionist way in that sense. It allows you to look at the synergistic effects of what happens in all these interaction networks at once. So that's what I mean about how it gives us a way to take social, the, you know, sociality very seriously in that way. And I think it's important to take the social, and, and, and you know, it's not just taking sociality seriously, it's taking this thing that we always call the social. You know, people talk about the social, and then don't really deal with it in a way that, that gets to grips with what we're really interested in. Because we talk about it and we pay lip service to it, and then we take people and we stick them in a laboratory on their own and ask them to like fill in a pen, you know, fill in a a questionnaire with a pen and paper or look at something on a computer screen and not look at, not really really start to tackle how people you know um, solve and do things in interaction but and having said that i read uh, chris chris abstract and clearly he is doing that which is, which is fantastic but i think that's what's what's really needed is how we need to truly engage socially and part of the reason why i think that's important is because of the things that that comes back to the beginning of my talk and the things that that you know, the, the proponents of the Santa Barbara Church say, 
people like Steven Pinker here. And I, I mentioned that he's also holding a brain like Lida Cosmides was in when uh, Russell showed her. And clearly it's some kind of Masonic handshake thing that they have going. But Steven's got a much bigger one. I want to understand. So he says things like this, you know, throughout all his books. You know, our brains are not wired to cope with anonymous crowds, schooling, written language, governments, police, courts, armies, modern medicine, formal social institutions, high technology, and other newcomers to social experience. You know, and, and I find that extraordinary, an extraordinary statement. But who made all those things up? Who, who invented them and constructed them? We did. How can, you, how can you invent them and then not understand them once you've got them? How can you not cope with them if you made them in the first place? I find that a very interesting thing to say because it strikes me as utterly strange to say that and and it contrasts completely with what Vygotsky says which is that culture creates special forms of behavior changes the function of the mind and in the course of historical development and uh, social humans change the ways and means of their behavior transform their natural premises and functions elaborate and create new specifically cultural forms of behavior which I think is exactly what Celia was talking about this morning that culture itself is creating a lot of this, and that, and, and that we are, are very, very, very unlikely to be kind of walking around with these mechanisms that we evolved in the Pleistocene that are failing to cope with the modern world. Um, and, and this is something that the point that uh, Robert Darnton makes in this book, which is a fantastic read, I can highly recommend it, where he deals with all these particular episodes in French cultural history and shows, you know, people, people, when people used to put pigs on trial and all these kinds of massacre cats. That's a thing that actually happens in this book. People go, massacre cats. And his point is that the reason why he wrote it is because, as he says here, he says, nothing is easier than to slip into the comfortable assumption that Europeans thought and felt two centuries ago just as we do today, except for the wigs and the, you know, the funny <coughs> shoes. And we need to be shaken out of a false sense of familiarity and to be administered doses of culture shock. And you know, he's talking about sort of 200 years ago. And if that's true of 200 years ago, it must be true 2,000 years ago, and it must be true 20,000 years ago. So it's very wrong to imagine that somehow we have just travelled through time and space, and, and the, these cultural um, practices that we've been engaging ever since someone took you know, the first old one tour and you know beamed a zebra with it, whatever they did with it, um, <clears throat> that we haven't somehow been transformed by that. The culture has fundamentally transformed us, and if we want to understand human cognitive evolution. We have to understand that process because essentially human cognitive evolution is an ongoing thing. We are continually evolving. We are continually creating new forms and ways of thinking. And so we can't just assume that we are, can tap into some kind of core human psychology because there probably isn't one in that way. And the reason why there isn't is because if we take the, the, this um, proverb of the Zulu people of South Africa, which I'm not even going to attempt to say, but I will provide you with, a, with an English translation, which is um, to say that a person is only a person through other people. So, as I said, what Celia said with some other incoherent stuff draped around it. So thank you very much for your attention.